think the Vietnam War drove a stake right into the heart of America. Unfortunately, we've never moved really far away from that. And we never recovered. That's a little bit from the Vietnam documentary that uh, Ken Burns, uh, it's his latest work, and I'm about halfway through it. It's, I think, 18 hours long total, but man, it is freaking fantastic. One of the reasons it's taken me a while to get through it, I've watched parts twice. Like when we had Mike Lyons, our military analyst, on the other day, he said he's going to watch it twice. It's it's pretty pretty damn good history. The Vietnam War, 10-part, 18-hour documentary film series directed by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Uh, currently airing, I believe, uh, certainly you can find it at pbs.org. Ken Burns joins us. Uh, Mr. Burns, how are you, sir? Good morning. Great to be with you. It's been a while since we've talked. Um, it has been a while. Congratulations to you and Lynn on the series. It is, it's riveting. It's amazing. It's hit, you know, I made a film on the Civil War that came out in 1990. and uh, Is that long ago? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 27 years, and I don't think I've had anything uh, except... Uh, the war to match this. You know, the one thing that has struck me watching it, um, and I've heard you and, and Lynn talk about it a little bit, but if it were one episode, the number of shots in each episode, and I know just enough about filmmaking to be dangerous, but the number of shots, the number of interviews, the number of still pictures is just astounding. I, I, it, it looks as though it took you 120 years to make this thing. Well, it took us, it felt like that. Uh, a lot of good people worked, helped with Lynn and me to make this film, and it took 10 years to make. And we have archives, not just from the kind of traditional sources, the networks and the National Archives, but from uh, Moscow and Beijing and uh, Hanoi for the first time we got access, first time anyone's gotten access to many uh, still photographs and footage from them. And then, of course, we've done something that no one else has been able to do, which is go to uh, Vietnam and interview North Vietnamese soldiers and civilians and South Vietnamese soldiers and civilians there and here and also Viet Cong guerrillas and uh, sort of have a multitude of perspectives that allow you to sort of more fully understand the war. And the amazing thing is that our is, is that our American Army guys and Marines sound a hell of a lot like the guys uh, on the other side and the admiration and the fear and the hatred and the respect are sort of mutually woven together, and it's a pretty incredible testimony. And you have to remember that because it's a communist regime, when their victory and you know uh, is is seen as a singular thing, a victory by the capital P people, whereas we, in a democratic society, we want to have. Um, individual people's experiences matter. And so this was the first time anybody had asked some of these Viet Cong guys and, and North Vietnamese guys what it was like. What did you feel? What happened? Who did you lose in your family? What did that make you feel? What was your experience of battle? To personalize it in a way that seems sort of obvious to us Americans, but it wasn't at all for them. And, and, and that was thrilling because I think they then, you know, sometimes like our Americans would break down on camera and cry remembering the loss of somebody. And you begin to realize the shared humanity of everyone, and it helps you tell a story from a multitude of perspectives. Got to be a completely different situation when you're doing a documentary where a lot of the participants and politicians are still alive. You weren't interviewing, for instance, Stonewall Jackson for Civil War. Unfortunately, no, I wasn't. I, I had his writings and his diaries and things like that, and we did our best. And I think 
successfully in that context of bringing to life the Lincolns and the Davises and the Stonewall Jacksons and the Ulysses S. Grants. Uh, but boy, to have people telling you, uh, take you on a chilling ambush or, or to be on the other side of that ambush to do the ambushing um, really brings the war home. I mean, in many cases, uh, we've got battles in which you've got uh, an American Marine advisor, his South Vietnamese Marine co- uh, counterpart, and a Viet Cong guerrilla or an NVA soldier talking about the same moment. So we have one guy saying, I was shooting out of the hedgerows. And you hear our American guy said, and all of a sudden the, f- the firing comes out of the hedgerows, and you think, my goodness, I- I'm there. And we were able to get such footage, and as you say, use a lot of it very quickly. Uh, this is a you know this is a modern era; it demands the kind of fast-paced uh, work that um, you know traditionally our old still photographs don't always uh, lend themselves to that kind of fast pace. But here, it's just chaos. Sometimes the Tet Offensive episode is is one of the most immersive things I've ever been involved in. Here, here. Uh, Ken Burns on the line, the documentary The Vietnam War. Surely you're aware of it if you aren't watching it, and you should be. Uh, Listen, we have a pretty broad uh, range of ideologies and sorts of folks who listen to our show, Ken, because we're brilliant. Um, But (laughs) but they, they do lean a little conservative. And just as the first episode was about to air... There was a lot of what I would describe as preemptive concern yeah, right. about whether it would be fair. Right. Uh, how's the feedback been? It's been phenomenal. I mean, you're always going to have at the extreme ends, the far, far left and the far, far right, uh, the snipers and the nitpickers. But, you know, this is what we do in a free society is is we have that privilege. Um, we Lynn and I had no political acts to grind. We didn't have any thumb on the scale. Uh, We bent over backwards to sort of present things just as they were. And you meet 50-plus Americans from every walk of life, from extraordinarily brave Marines and Army veterans to uh, anti-war protesters, Gold Star mothers, policy wonks in the Pentagon, journalists, mostly folks that you've never heard of, which is really, really important so that you don't, they don't come with their baggage. The John McCain's, the John Kerry's I went to at the very beginning of the project, and I said, look, we need your help and your assistance, but we're not going to put you in it. You'll be in it archivally, your testimony, John Kerry in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, your extraordinary interview given under unbelievable pain and duress and after torture uh, by the North Vietnamese, John McCain, but they got it. We didn't do Henry Kissinger or Jane Fonda either. So, you know, they're all in it, and they're in it archivally, but that permitted us not to have anybody at all putting their thumb on the scale and trying to influence stuff, and that's hugely important. Americans are still unsettled about Vietnam. Everybody's in their hardened silos exactly, you know, certain they know what happened. Well, if you watch this film, you realize there's absolutely no certainty. Everything you thought you knew, just as everything I thought I knew, goes out the window in the first couple of episodes. And then if you can melt that certainty, which is the enemy of communication, then you have an ability to see that the battles that take place are not always between armies on the battlefield, but within people. And half the people that you meet in the film of the 80 people on camera, half of them undergo unbelievable transformations just in the course of the film. And I'm not talking necessarily about political transformations sometimes, but they're more emotional and psychological. And and they help us heal. They help us find some kind of closure. They help us move towards reconciliation. The irony is, 
is that we've got great relations with Vietnam. They're an important economic and now a super important strategic partner for us. But the war's unsettled for them as well. And they're sort of arguing, did we need to uh, have conducted it with the strategies we did? And the strategy was we will not ca- count the cost, meaning they would send wave after wave uh, to their death. And they lost three million people. We sit there and grieve at the 58,000 plus whose names are etched in that beautiful wall in Washington. And uh, and that is a kind of intolerable figure for us, for a big, big country. They were a relatively small country, 30 million back then, and they lost 3 million people. There's not a family that doesn't have a ghost in their house. And so we just wanted to tell a kind of complete story. And because we had presidential tapes from Johnson and Nixon, it takes what's usually a top-down kind of boring history lesson about policy decisions. And you can hear the intimacy of Johnson's anguish or Nixon's calculation or whatever it might be. You, You can just hear it. It's right there. And people say, oh, yeah, I know the tapes. You don't know the tapes. Not even all the tapes have still... 50 years later, been transcribed, let alone released. Well, so. that was uh, that was one of the most striking things uh, to me, was that you have various uh, fans of history trying to convince you that it's just tides of ideology and, right. and history is inevitable. But you hear these guys who obviously wanted to get the hell out, yep. but th- thought they couldn't and, and sent many, many more people to be sacrificed. And if one of them had found the courage or, you know, you describe it any way you and want, it, it would have changed history fundamentally. You would have, that's exactly right. Our first episode is called Deja Vu because it's a French term. And uh, everything that happened to the French happened to us. And we could have learned a lesson and said, "Uh uh-oh, you know, the sign says bridge out, you know, three miles ahead. Oh, no, I'm just going to blithely go on and, like a cartoon, find ourselves in midair going, whoa, 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 what happened here? And that's exactly Vietnam. Every decision that was made in Vietnam, uh, in Washington about Vietnam, had overhanging it domestic political considerations, which is a polite way of saying, will I get reelected? And from Truman to Eisenhower to particularly Kennedy and most particularly Johnson and Nixon, decisions were made that way. I'll give you one example. If Nixon, who went in very clear-eyed, he and Kissinger were realists. They knew this wasn't about Vietnam. We had to get the hell out of there right away. But nobody wanted to be the first president to, quote, lose a war. So they had to do it in a different way. If he'd walked into Paris uh, two days after he was inaugurated and said, I accept your terms, he basically got the same terms four years later. But you know what? There were 20-plus thousand dead Americans, more dead Americans, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dead Vietnamese for essentially, you know, terms not dissimilar to what they finally did. And, you know, it's it's just a, a compelling story in which it's impossible for you to say, I get it, and for certainty it's this way. I made a film on the history of jazz, and Wynton Marsalis said a really brilliant thing to me once. He said, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. And that kind of short circuits our rational world in which one and one always equals two. But that's what happens in history, and particularly in war. And that when you see all these different perspectives, we just decided, let's not make anybody wrong. Let's just tell everybody's story. 
Let's just be fair and try to explain everybody's story, and let's get the facts right. There's been 40 years of extraordinary scholarship about the war. Let's just make sure we've got all of that right, and we'll trust to our audience's intelligence. So you'll meet, we'll, we'll bring battles to life, and you'll meet extraordinarily brave Americans. You'll understand the origins of the anti-war movement, where it went off the rails and was wrong. You'll, nobody is, has got a claim on, on villainy, ultimate villainy, and nobody's got a claim on ultimate goodness here. So it's, uh, to me, just a, a very complex story, and that if we Americans can unpack it and can face it and look at it, it's going to help with the hyper-partisanship that's derailed the progress of our country today and permit us to do what Shelby Foote said in the Civil War we have a genius for. He said Americans like to think of themselves as uncompromising people, but our genius is for compromise, and when that failed, we murdered 750,000 of our own people. That's called the Civil War. Uh, what's your next project? I'm working on a biography of Ernest Hemingway and a major series on the history of country music. Awesome. Wow, terrific. I like the sound of that. I was thinking, man, the pressure's got to be a lot less. Because if you get something wrong about Louis Armstrong's uh, upbringing, it's not the same as getting something wrong about the Vietnam War in terms of pressure. You know, can I I just respectfully correct you? When we were working on the Civil War, there were arguments among our consultants and interpretations and people, you know, after the film was out, sometimes wanted to, you know, were blaming the messenger for the message, which, you know, often happens in these contentious things. Baseball, our series on baseball, there would be shouting matches between the various experts. And in jazz, we actually had one consultant fly across the table to try to punch the lights out of the other person. You know, somebody wow. said the reason why the passions are so great is because the stakes are so small. <laughs> wow. I mean, I have I had to I had to separate I had to separate and conduct jazz uh, meetings by phone and by mail and by individual meetings because it was just too hot and passionate. Wow. So we had these guys, we had leftist historians, we had centrist historians, we had historians of the right, we had guys from the Army College from West Point, we had veterans across every political point of view in our editing room watching our various screenings. Nobody yelled. Not one. That is, wow. I'm so people glad I brought say, that up. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you did too. People would just say, you know what? I think you, you you use this adjective here. I think that's a kind of a thumb on the scale unintentionally. And I look at it and I go, yeah, you know what? You don't need that. It's like building a building and all of a sudden you realize, I can take away the scaffolding. I can take away this false work. This thing's going to stand on its own. I don't need to put that adjective or that adverb in it. It's fine. And so we had conversations like that, you know, uh, left, right, and center. And look at my funders. They are across the political spectrum, from David Koch. I went to him early on, and I've got a left-wing bundler for the president, and both of them have told me they have never been so proud uh, of their support for something than, than, their, than this uh, project. This interview with Ken Burns is going to be released as a 10-part series <laughs> yes, right. um, entitled, What the Hell's Wrong <laughs> with Humanity? <laughs> Try to stop me talking. I've got no, a 10-part oh, no. answer. No, we always enjoy it. The Vietnam War film Very by Ken good. Burns and Lynn Novick is yeah, airing it weekly. It's, 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 yes, we're now playing uh, 9 o'clock, check local listings. On Tuesday nights, we're up to episode 4. But, you know, you can go online, you can download it to own, you can buy the DVDs and the Blu-rays are out. It's it's going to be hard if you got any interest in this subject. And I would suggest if you want the Rosetta Stone to today and what's going on today, you could do no better than to study Vietnam. Ken Burns, it's always enjoyable and stimulating. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks. 
Wow, I'm glad I brought that up. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll they be were, damned. They were going to fight over uh, Louis Armstrong history, and everybody, people from all sides politically on Vietnam, you know, we'll, we'll agree to I disagree. I see your point there. Wow, no less than three phrases I'm going to try to memorize. The uh, Wynton Marsalis exactly thing, that certainty is the enemy of communication, and the passions were great just because the stakes were so low. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, stay with us. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. I think it's time. Apple has announced that it will add hundreds of new emojis to its iOS system, including a person at a spa, a vomiting face, and a shushing finger, finally giving emoji fans the ability to describe what it was like to work for Harvey Weinstein. Hey, now. Um, you know, my friend uh, Mike, the attorney, we were talking about the, uh, the controversy when Al Michaels made a uh, Harvey Weinstein joke on the football match. Let's play it. It's so good. This is from Sunday Night Football, the number one show in America. Let's face it, the Giants are coming off a worse week than Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) And they're up by 14 points. Sorry I made a reference earlier before trying to be a little flip about uh, somebody obviously very much in the news all over the country and it was not meant in that manner. So, uh, my apologies. And, uh, he says, we'll just leave it at that. Nah. Just because he has to, not yeah. meaning a word of it. No, the tone. And of- we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> the tone <laughs> The tone of it was, and if you didn't like the joke, you can suck it. That was the tone of his apology. Right. <laughs> well, I am practically being forced to say this at the point of a gun, so we'll just leave it at that. And as as uh, Mike, the attorney, points out, what about the million Cosby jokes? He's a rapist. Just drugging women for decades. This is fake outrage. Everybody is so desperate to be angry. I know which I pisses am. me off. <laughs> Praise continues to flow in for our Ken Burns interview. Oh, the criticism will come. Many, soon many of you really enjoyed, um, and I certainly did. And uh, I like all the stuff that he does a lot. I wonder uh, one thing about Ken Burns: the boy sure likes to talk. Says one person. Yeah, he gives long, he gives long answers, which I have no problem with. They're always interesting. I've never I've never thought he's into repetitive, boring territory. They're interesting, but I wonder how much of the fact that his documentaries are really long is just his personality of giving long answers. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. I, I don't know. I love that jazz documentary, and I'm not even yeah. that big a jazz yeah. fan. I, you know, I, I, I hardly it. watched any of that one. Pretty uh, good, though. Oh, huh? freaking fantastic. I thought it was trash. I'll fight you over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah. Did they talk about the syncopation? <laughs> yes, they got into the syncopation. <laughs> All right. Um, I actually think he said people are still dug into their silos. I, didn't, I don't get that feeling. I, I have felt like I was about to say, but I would have been contradicting him. I think he did this at the right time where people are ready to have this conversation and say, maybe we were wrong here. or Maybe we're right there. Some guy on there saying he was ashamed. You don't start screaming at him and want to, you know, uh, call him unpatriotic or something. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like that's where we are. Maybe it's because I'm younger. I don't know. Yeah, I thought there was plenty for everybody to like. And there's probably plenty for everybody to feel a little uncomfortable about. I just I don't know. Like I say, the whole wanting desperately to be outraged thing. I totally get where there are some nits you could pick, um, depending on your experience and your perceptions. But I just, uh, I don't know. I was, uh, there was so much to learn. There was so much interesting stuff in it. And I haven't watched even nearly all of it. That I just, I don't get how how the nits. I mean, you, you've bought an elephant that has a nit on it. Appreciate the elephant. Don't, don't focus on the nit. But that's the way, uh, you know, I look at life. You look at it however you want. 
Um, what's coming up in your news, Marsha Phillips? Well, Secretary of State Tillerson getting grilled in the weekend news shows, name-calling all round. Yeah, this is there's some interesting stuff Tillerson said yesterday. You got a top California Democrat running against fellow Dem Senator Dianne Feinstein. Getting primaried. And Swedish death cleaning, the new way to downsize. Stories coming up. Swedish death cleaning. Yes. Stories coming up minutes from now, Armstrong and Getty. Plus... Quietly, with very little attention, uh, the ancient governor of California signed a law that said felons can vote now. I hadn't even heard it was coming, and it's come. It's here. You're going to explain to us how modern technology is ruining human beings? Ah, I may. Depends how long my attention span is when we get there. Yeah. Yeah, it is really chilling. Yeah. I want to hear science. It it's I, not. It's not somebody bitching. You can't go out with somebody without them looking at the smartphone. No, this is science. It worries me. It worries me almost every day that I'm destroying my brain. Stay tuned for all this coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. London police are investigating some allegations of rape on old Harvey Weinstein. So, uh, As is New York, I guess. Yeah. Well, sounds like he was raping people is why. That's what, that's what will lead to that. Um, uh, there's one other thing I was going to mention. The tease. I was going to tease something good. Oh, Colin Kaepernick is, is uh, going to sue the NFL for collusion. Yeah. Keeping him out of job. He's yep. wrong, as usual. Um, but I feel for the guy. We'll uh, talk about that and a whole bunch of other stuff coming up right now. The news with Marsha Phillips. Well, it's just coming in. Accused Army deserter and former Taliban prisoner Bo Bergdahl is pleading guilty to desertion and misbehavior. Took long enough. Bergdahl saying he doesn't believe he'd be able to get a fair trial because of comments made by President Trump. During the campaign, Trump called the sergeant a traitor. Yeah, I'd call, I'd call him that because he was. That's why I would call him that. But that's just me. Firefighters in Northern California making progress against the deadliest fires, wildfires in the state's history. Winds died down on Sunday. Crews now have containment lines around more than half of the two most destructive fires. And some people are being allowed to return home. Governor Brown over the weekend, though, issuing this uh, cautionary uh, warning during a visit to the burn zones. We're not out of the woods yet. There's still fires burning. There's still danger. People have to not... uh... Uh, come to the conclusion that they don't need to be on the alert. People need to move when they're told. Uh, they have to take it very seriously. Well, you know, our crazy syphilitic old governor does make a good wow. point in that the overall wow. risk has been reduced significantly, but if you are in the path of where the risk still exists and things shift and all of a sudden you're overrun for fire, it's not like, you know, if it's 40% contained, you're not 40% more less or less burned up. Right. It's still absolutely life-threatening and terrible. On uh, on the uh, talk shows over the weekend, the news uh, shows, uh, the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was making the rounds. He was on CBS Face the Nation saying President Trump is supporting him in his many efforts, including efforts to bring North Korea to the negotiating table. Our diplomatic efforts will continue until the first bomb is dropped. Host John Dickerson. That's, uh, that's, you don't hear that out of Secretary of <laughs> no. State all the time. Our, our diplomacy will continue until the first bomb is dropped. Okay. Are you bothered by that? Some people are. Some people aren't. Yeah. I don't know. Statement of fact, please. It's fine. Host. These are tough times. We need tough talk. <laughs> oh, hey, Sean, we got to yes. find... Uh, I thought we had it. My mistake. I should ask for it. Do we have uh, Tillerson with Jake Tapper? Yeah, wait. that's what we got now. 
Yeah. Oh, we do. Yes. Well, oh, fabulous. We got, a, we got a couple of things here. First off, we got John Dickerson asking Tillerson about his relationship with President Trump as interpreted by a powerful senator. Senator Bob Corker, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, somebody you're working with on the Iran agreement. Last week, he said that uh, you are not being supported in the way that he hoped a secretary of state would be supported. And this week, he put a finer point on it and said you're being publicly castrated by the president. What's going on here? The way the president operates in terms of causing action under his foreign policy decisions, but also his domestic policy decisions, I think sometimes people have a, there are challenged to put all that together. Jake Tapper on CNN and the State of the Union really pressed Tillerson on whether or not he had called the president a moron. I'm not playing. I'm not playing. You want to make a game out of it? I'm not playing. I'm not it's making, sim- I'm not making a game out of it. I mean, I'm just trying to see clarity because saying that if I said that my boss was a moron, that would be a serious issue. It wouldn't be. And, and my boss doesn't control nukes. Um, I'm willing to move on, but I just want to be clear. You still haven't denied that you called him a moron. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of people are going to watch this and think he probably said it. I'm not dignifying the question with an answer. There you well, go. That's good, good stuff. man. There that's, you go. That's an old Texan. You're not going to let that pretty little Jake Tapper get under his 10-gallon hat. And do we have the snip-snip response? Do we have that? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, Number two. Uh, yeah, here it is. I checked. I'm fully intact. Oh, one question. Uh, you have a question. <laughs> oh, is this one, uh, this one? Senator Bob Corker. Chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, somebody you're working no, with on the Iran agreement. Let's just cut it off. Let's just here, cut Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Corker said Tillerson was castrated. Right. Tapper asked Tillerson about it. He right. said, I checked. I'm fully intact. It's funnier when you play it in a different way. Mm. <laughs> it's much funnier when you lay it out in a different mm. way. But uh, there you go. Kevin DeLeon, president of the California Senate, says he will challenge U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein in next year's election. Kevin, my ethnicity before my country, DeLeon. The 84-year-old Feinstein's been in the Senate since 1992 and has never faced a serious electoral challenge from within her party. Times have changed, man. Times have changed. Both parties are going more extreme and... uh... I don't know. Is is it a good thing or a bad thing? All we can hope is that it turns very, very ugly. (laughs) Downsizing and decluttering sparking a number of trendy methods and philosophies these days. And now there's a decluttering guide that features a rather darker take called Swedish Death Cleaning. (laughs) Margarita Magnusson, an elderly Swedish artist, wrote the book The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Clearing and Cleaning and guides people in the way to eliminate possessions by thinking about if anyone would want the items after they die. Magnus said the question you should ask yourself is, will anybody I know be happier if I save this? If not, it'll just be more things for them to have to go through and throw out once you're gone. Well, where does this end? I mean, because I don't imagine my kids will want my (laughs) socks, but I'm not going to throw them away because they keep my feet warm. Yeah, well, she's saying when you're when you're downsizing and decluttering, just get rid of the stuff that you're not using right now, and you don't think anybody'd want after you're dead. You know, surrounded by dry pasture land with the winds at sixty miles an hour over the weekend, my wife and I were briefly discussing what we would jam into our cars if somehow a fire starts and we got to get out. Good idea. And uh, you know. There's a lot of stuff I'd be happy to see burn, like everything in the garage. Wow. Honest to God. Why I keep it and feel like I need to go through it piece by piece to make sure something important isn't thrown out. When, when, When I think of a fire, I think, go ahead. Whatever. 
It's, it's, it's boxes of crap. I wish I could walk into my garage right now. You have me charged up. I believe. I believe! You're so right. Well, and we just moved, what, a few months ago, right. so you should see our garages. Have <laughs> junk in them. Why isn't that in the house? Probably because you don't need it. Right. right. Yeah. There you go. That's a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips. Here I'm Strong and Getty Show, the voice of the West. You see, the Secretary of State saying on television that he examined his own testicles and they're still there is funny. I appear to be intact. It's funny, but we somehow managed to present in a way that it was not funny. Maybe we'll work Object, on that. I'm fully intact. We'll work really, on that. It's really an achievement in humor, in a way. <laughs> it's a testicle joke from the Secretary of State. Right. Not usually where you get testy jokes. Generally speaking. Um, speaking of jokes, James Corton, is that his name? The, the, the English guy with the show? Check his uh, papers. He made some Weinstein jokes over the weekend that I thought were funny. But he got uh, a couple of the victims didn't think they were funny at all. Good boy. Maybe we'll let you know about those. Plus, have we lost a generation? Have smartphones destroyed a generation? I think so. It's an intriguing question, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Jack has answered it. <laughs> Never mind. The answer is yes. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll talk about that coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. I'm not playing. I'm not playing. You want to make a game out of it? I'm not playing. I'm not it's making. Sim- I'm not making a game out of it. I mean, I'm just trying to see clarity because saying that if I said that my boss was a moron, that would be a serious issue. It wouldn't be, and and my boss doesn't control nukes. Um, I'm willing to move on, but I just want to be clear. You still haven't denied that you called him a moron. And, you know, a lot of people are going to watch this and think he probably said it. I'm not dignifying the question with an answer. So, do you think he called him a moron or not? I'm not playing. I'm not playing that game. Neither am I. In solidarity <laughs> with the tough-talking Texan. I'm not going to be lured into this crap by you. <laughs> you crap slinger. Do you think he called Trump a moron behind closed doors or not? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> Referred to his boss as a moron. If I had okay. to pick one or the other, and I protest with my very soul being dragged into this filth, yes, yeah. I think he does. I, well, like we said last week, I don't think it's as much as he's um, uh, saying he didn't say it. He's saying, what kind of world is this where people don't have conversations behind closed doors and, and vent and talk and it stays <clears throat> private? Right. Right. What is this? Well, one of the key components of fake outrage is you have to pretend there's no difference between what people say privately and what they will say to the assembled media. That if you let go the thought, God, he's such a moron when you're talking about your boss because you don't like his decision, that that should be taken with every bit the weight. As if you called a press conference and said, I would like to announce that our boss, Mr. Pringle, is a moron. When there are very, very different things. And anybody who's being honest knows that. Or even that you mean everything that you say right, right. about or, somebody. I got Or a, you make a joke, for instance. I've got a, uh, I was going to do this thing later, pink. The musician Pink did an yes. interview about her marriage and said some interesting things, and I wondered how many people relate to it, but how sometimes she loves her husband and thinks she's the greatest guy in the world, and sometimes she hates him and doesn't understand why she ever married him, <laughs> his thoughts that she has. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, whatever. Okay, I wanted to move on to this. Uh, James Corden, he was at some gala or whatever it is. One of those things that these people go to. I do, do love a gala. Yeah, it was a, it was a non-televised fundraiser gala thing in L.A. One of the jokes came out. Somebody was smartphoning it. Here in L.A., it's so beautiful. 
Harvey Weinstein has already asked tonight up to his hotel to give him a massage. So I, I thought that was a funny joke. Such a beautiful night that Harvey Weinstein has asked it up to his room wow. for a massage. Uh, and a number of jokes that he made, which uh, some of the victims... If you're a rape victim, I'm guessing you don't think any humor around Harvey Weinstein is appropriate at all if you've been raped. That'd be my guess. I could see that. Um, I'm not sure that means that nobody can joke about it at Mm. all. Yeah. Uh, It's been weird this week, though, hasn't it? Watching Harvey Weinstein in hot water. Ask any of the women who watched him take a bath. It's weird watching Harvey Weinstein in hot water. (laughs) Oh, boy. Another James Corden joke from the event. Harvey Weinstein wanted to come tonight, but he'll settle for whatever potted plant is closest. Oh, oh, I get it. Which is uh, a reference to an unfortunate incident. See, I agree with Sean. I want that story out there. I want to make sure everybody has heard that he did that. He cornered a woman and then does it into a potted plant because that's how freaking weird and sick he is. I, I fully believe in the power of mockery. And I, I, I think it's a it's a powerful weapon, and I think it's one of the ones that a guy like Weinstein who wants to be praised at award shows probably hits him harder than any sort of financial fine or penalty would. Mm. Good point. Well, actress, um, what's her name, McGowan? Rose, Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan, who uh, says she was raped by Harvey Weinstein, and I have no reason to doubt that. Didn't think that was cool at all. Said Corden was... Uh, a close friend of Harvey Weinstein's and added, hearing the audience's vile roars and laughs shows exactly what kind of Hollywood you really are. She demanded that CBS, for which Corden hosts the Late Show, to donate money to uh, a woman's center, or in all caps, you too support rape culture, then added the hashtag F James Corden. Wow, that's an interesting take. I would have to, I'd have to ask. Uh, a number of women with similar experiences with Harvey Weinstein and 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 similar guys, what they thought. I don't think that would be a universal reaction of those jokes. James Corden tweeted hours later, sexual assault is no laughing matter. I was not trying to make light of Harvey's inexcusable behavior, but to shame him, the abuser, not the victims. Right, and which I, I have think a feeling most women true. would get that, yeah. 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 But, you know, who am I to pronounce on that topic? Yeah. I thought... Saturday Night Live went at Harvey Weinstein pretty hard during their news, you know. But those jokes would have been a lot better last week uh, when the story had been out for a full 24 hours. If you'd done that last week, I would have enjoyed it a lot more than after an entire week of hearing that NBC killed the story, that Saturday Night Live canceled any jokes about him. I mean, it just it sounded... It just felt to me really phony and trying to make up for an inexcusable mistake right? of right. taking a pass on it. It really reminded me kind of of a, uh, a the Wizard of Oz thing, right, where it, everybody waited for him to be officially fired. Everyone was waiting to see if the Wicked Witch was actually dead before we could dare come out and say anything against the, the yeah. almighty ha- yep. Harvey Absolutely. Weinstein. Well, yeah. in, in, in fairness to the munchkins and the guards in their big furry hats, she was a witch. She had magical powers. And could reach out and send her flying monkeys their way. So, I understand. It's easy for you to sit there in your comfy chair and d- d- describe how munchkins should have overthrown the witch. They were terrified. But as far as the Saturday Night Live thing, you you don't still get the credit for being edgy and dangerous and cool and risky and out there a full week later when 30 women have come forward and you're making your jokes. Well, you can't be edgy if the edge came through a week ago. <laughs> you know, <laughs> If you had done it last Saturday, maybe. Yeah. Um, but a full week later, it just felt like, don't don't try to seem like you're edgy and dangerous yeah. with your jokes. Come on, the guy's completely done now. 
I thought that was a little weird. Yeah, and just uh, one more note. We mentioned this earlier, but the Motion Picture Academy. I'd like to thank the Academy. Making a big deal about drumming Harvey Weinstein out. There are so many harassers, rapists, and child molesters left in Hollywood. What about them? You want a list of names? I can get it for you in a pretty big hurry. But but you know who they are, you bunch of phonies. A lot of them have been convicted. I worry every day that my smartphone is ruining my brain and the way I take in modern information. Well, at least you don't have the plasticky brain of a child or a youth that's getting really screwed up. There's some pretty good science saying we are screwing up a generation. Oof, that's scary. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show.